0: Our scripture today comes from Luke 24, 33 through 49. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? That is it, I myself. Touch me and see me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witness of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You may be seated.
1: Welcome to Stonehouse Church. We are uh, glad you're joining us here. If uh, we haven't met, I'm Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Derek uh, is enjoying a little bit of rest, so you'll have to put up with me this morning. Um, We have been walking through a series called The Extent of Grace in which we look at the Gospel of Luke uh, and the narratives in that Gospel that are unique to him Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the Synoptic Gospels, which means they have a lot of overlap. Synoptic means same eye. So they tell a lot of the same stories, and there is a little bit of variance among them. Uh, And so what we've been doing is looking at those stories which are unique to Luke's Gospel. And uh, last week we saw uh, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, After Jesus had risen from the dead and they're they're walking along the road, they're talking to him and they have no idea that it's actually Jesus that they're looking at. He's speaking to them, but for some reason they don't recognize him. They don't see that it's him, which kind of makes sense because it's not every day that someone rises from the dead and they know that he was killed and that he was buried. So they're not assuming that he rose from the dead and is walking on the road to Emmaus with them. But later we do see that they invite him to stay at their house and he unfolds the scriptures and he tells them that the entirety of the Old Testament ultimately was pointing to me all along. So they are marveling at this reality. And then later, the 11 disciples are in a living room together, probably, sitting Jesus is dead, they have not heard yet that he's risen from the grave. And this is our backdrop today. Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for uh, uh, joining us this morning. Thank you for sending your spirit uh, to lead us into all truth. Thank you for the gathering of your people. Thank you for uh, the reality that... On the heels of Easter, we can come and say with confidence, he's risen, uh, that you are alive, that you are good, that you uh, care for us, and that death has now been defeated. Lord, as we seek to uh, discover truth in your word that you've given to us, may we take it seriously. May our hearts be readied for it, and may you protect me from error. Uh, May you say what it is that you want to say, and if I misstep... Uh, Protect us from that. Uh, May we forget it quickly. Thank you uh, for hearing us and loving us and leading us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Bob Dylan wrote a song. He called it, he wrote many songs. One that he wrote is called Everything is Broken. A couple of the verses go like this broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates. Broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Seems like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hit the ground. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws. Broken bodies, broken bones. Broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath, feel like you're choking. Everything... Is broken. Is Bob Dylan right? <laughs> I would say yes, and I probably don't have to convince you of that. Most people understand that something is not right with the world. It just doesn't go as it ought to. And when Jesus shows up to the disciples this morning, he didn't show up today, but when he showed up thousands of years ago in this morning's passage and says, Peace to you, it changes everything. And as usual, the disciples are scared and they're disbelieving. They're frightened. They don't really think it's him, just like the two that were on the road to Emmaus with him. But ultimately, this is a story of God in the flesh after being abandoned by his closest friends, murdered by his own creation then rising from the dead against all odds and expectations, and then showing up to those very deserters who left him in order to announce peace to them. They, just like us, are people who desperately need this reality. It's important that we understand that what Jesus is saying here is a little bit more than the peace that we're used to. The English word for peace... Uh, doesn't really do the text justice. We kind of think about the absence of war or the absence of conflict or the absence of noise. Uh, in reality here, what Jesus is getting at is, is far deeper, far greater, far wider. The Hebrew word for it that we see all throughout the Old Testament is called shalom. You may have heard the term. It's often used as a greeting and a, a goodbye, if you will. And it essentially means peace to you not only in an absence of conflict, absence of noise, absence of war, but in a full sense, there is a positive connotation, blessings in every sense, flourishing in every sphere of your life, wholeness, goodness. It was often used to describe um, a wall. Maybe that was made out of bricks. And if there was a hole in the wall, and that hole was patched with a brick, you would say that wall is now in shalom. It's whole. It's not missing anything. It's full. So when Jesus says, peace to you, he means absolute life in every aspect is yours. The Greek word, irene, shares the meaning of shalom, but also has an additional connotation. It means to join. We're going to see the significance of that later, a lot of times when I talk to people, they tell me, um, yeah, a lot of them know that I'm a Christian, uh, some know that I'm a pastor, but we'll often engage in dialogue, and folks will say things like, all religions basically teach the same thing. You know, they're, they're, they're all essentially saying the same truths, maybe there are some differences here and there, but they're basically all just kind of getting at the same thing. That is true, it's also false, Okay, C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, The Abolition of Man, uh, goes to great lengths in the appendix and actually puts together a list of the overlap from all the major world religions. He comes up with essentially six things, and I'm going to loosely tell you what they are. One, don't do bad to others. Do good to others. Two, care especially for those who are close to you. Three, pursue justice. Four, be integrous and don't lie. Five, be merciful. Six, be generous. Seven, be patient with your children. (laughs) Seven is not a thing. But are these things in the Bible? Yes, absolutely. A thousand times over, they are. They're also in other world religions. You ask fairly then, why Christianity? What is different? Can I not get peace from these other religions too that tell me to do the same thing? When it comes to peace, Christianity is first of all far more pessimistic than other religions. But it is also far more optimistic than other religions. How can both be true? Let's find out. First of all, we're going to cover two main things. First, empty peace. Second, full peace. What causes our lack of peace? We've already kind of established that there is a lack of peace in the world. And everyone that I know unanimously agrees that we ought to follow those six things that I just listed off. I don't know anybody that says, no, you should not be merciful. You should not be generous. You should not be patient, whatever it is. Everyone that I know says, yep, we should do that. The problem is none of us seem to actually do it. We try. We give our lives to these sometimes. Some of us try really, really hard. But we end up falling short. This, of course, is in part what leads to the lack of peace in the world. But there is a different, slightly more profound reality that Christianity points out. It is that not only our bad behavior leads to lack of peace, but that we have a lack of peace, and therefore we don't behave as we ought. Our lack is what leads to some of these problems in the world. So we, we don't start with peace, we start without it, and therefore we cannot live as we hope to. Our problem is not that we fail to do good to others, to pursue justice, to tell the truth, show mercy and live generously, ultimately... Our problem is that we have no peace and therefore we don't do good to others as we should. We don't pursue justice as we should. We don't tell the truth as we should. We don't show mercy, live generously, etc. So every single one of us is aware of this quietly operating lack of peace in our own hearts and we all have our own solutions to these problems. Conscious or not. Some of us pursue diet and exercise to extreme degrees so that we can achieve a perfect body, perfect image in which we gain the attention and approval of others that we sorely long for. Others turn to food or drink or sex to quiet the inner monologue that reminds us of the uneasiness that we continually live with. You can even do things like using good deeds to give you a sense of peace, knowing that you can never measure up, that you're not good enough. Deep down, you understand there is a lack of peace, so you give your life over to charity and generosity as a means of quieting the guilt in your own heart over past sins. You can try to fill this void with busyness, always working, always cleaning, always something on the schedule, always an event, always productive, because if I'm occupied all the time, I won't have to listen to the voices that tell me that I am not truly at peace. It was Blaise Pascal that said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. These solutions are all Band-Aids on gunshot wounds. They are a poor and temporary cover-up of our lack a guy by the name of Linz Redding is uh, was an artist He's from New Zealand. He unfortunately uh, got cancer and passed away. But he was heavily involved in, in big-time advertising. Very successful guy, coveted. Um, people wanted him to work on their projects. And he, after he got cancer, had to step away from his work for a little while. And in the process of that, he he had some time to reflect on his life in a way that he hadn't previously. And here's, here's what he says. Fair warning, this is a lot of text, but I think it's incredibly insightful. He says, it turns out I didn't actually like my old life nearly as much as I thought I did. I know this now because I occasionally catch up with my old colleagues and workmates. They fall over each other to enthusiastically show me the latest project they're working on, ask my opinion, proudly show off their technical prowess, which is not inconsiderable. And I find myself glazing over, but politely listen as they brag about who's had the least sleep and the most takeaway food. I haven't seen my wife since January. I can't feel my legs anymore, and I think I have scurvy. But another three weeks and we'll be done. It's got to be done by then. The client's going on holiday. What do you think? His response, what do I think? I think you're all mad, deranged, so disengaged from reality it's not even funny. It's a TV commercial. Nobody cares. This has come as quite a shock, I can tell you. I think I've come to the conclusion that the whole thing was a bit of a con, a scam, an elaborate hoax. Countless late nights and weekends, holidays, birthdays, school recitals, and anniversary dinners were willingly sacrificed at the altar of some intangible, but infinitely worthy, higher cause. It would all be worth it in the long run. This was the con. Convincing myself that there was nowhere I'd rather be was just a coping mechanism. I can see that now. It wasn't really important, or of any consequence at all, really. How could it be? We were just shifting product, our product, and the clients, just meeting the quota, feeding the beast, as I called it on my more cynical days. So was it worth it? Well, of course not. Turns out it was just advertising. There was no higher calling. You see what he's getting at? He was the guy that he thought was totally ridiculous when he asked his friends how things were going. They said they hadn't slept in three weeks. They hadn't seen their wife in months. They had scurvy, (laughs) couldn't feel their legs anymore. What in the world would lead somebody to do that? Who would live their life like that? You and me. <laughs> People that don't have deep, residing, internal, genuine peace. People that are after it and find it in the approval of working all night on something and getting that cookie at the end of the day. Good job. You did something meaningful until the voices creep up again and the process starts all over, right? These folks had no peace but had a desperate search after it. Lynn's Redding's altar was productive creativity in the advertising industry. His sacrifice towards this god of Productivity in his aim for peace was time, energy. Here's the thing, though you have an altar as well. Might not be creativity in advertising, but it is something else. We all have one. I'm not saying you're a workaholic, I'm saying that you do something to find peace. There is something that you turn to, something you give your life to, something you you build your identity on, something that you do at the expense of all other things. Lynn's Redding's heart habits were not unique among people. There's something that drives you, something that you turn to to quiet the unrest. You have something that you think will give you shalom, wholeness, fullness, abundant life, but it never does. It's another example. Deion Sanders is one of the best athletes to ever live, one of the few that actually played professional football at a very high level and even professional baseball at a high level. And one night after he won the Super Bowl, he said this, I remember winning the Super Bowl that year That night after the game, I was the first one out of the locker room, first one to the press conference, and the first one to go home. And I remember my wife, Carolyn, saying to me, baby, you just won the Super Bowl. Don't you have a party downstairs or something to go to? And I just said, nah, rolled over and went to sleep. That was the same week I bought myself a brand new $275,000 Lamborghini. And I haven't even driven a mile before I realized, no, that's not it. It's not what I'm looking for. It's got to be something else. I'm so hungry. You're hungry. I'm hungry. Success, accomplishment, achievement, it will never satiate you. Fill in the blank. It does not give you what it promises to give you. It's the ultimate bait and switch. Linz Redding and Dion Sanders show us that we long for peace, but we can't get it from the things that we do. A million pats on the back, winning one of the largest sports events in the entire world. None of it will quiet your heart. Some of you in this room are pretty accomplished. I don't think anybody's as accomplished as either of the two of them. Trust them when they say it won't give you what you want. And that's really what kind of makes it difficult for us sometimes. The fact that we don't actually get the things that we chase after sometimes, right? It's not until you have it in its fullness that you realize that it's empty. And so often we're, we're on a treadmill going after it because we don't have it. But see, when you get it, that's when you realize how empty it is, right? Consider the lottery. Who would like to win the lottery? Show of hands. Okay. At first, I thought you were not telling me the truth. About 70% of people who win the lottery lose their winnings within a few years. By lose, of course, they mean spend. And we look at that and we say, how? How is that possible? Millions of dollars, gone. I have a theory. That is, you get the money, you spend a little bit of it, you think it will be better than it is, whatever you spent the money on, and it's not. It's disappointing. So what do you do? You spend more. And it never satisfies your hunger, and you keep spending. Donna Micken, I believe is how you pronounce it, says, she won the lottery, she says, Most people look at winning the lottery as some magic pot of gold waiting for you at the end of the rainbow. She said she considered herself a happy person before the win. Then she says, when we won the lottery, my inner dialogue was manic. I became more concerned about how I was being judged and perceived, not realizing I was the one doing the judging in the first place. If you asked me, my life was hijacked by the lottery. How? She looked to it to give her something that it could never give her. She built her life on it. She thought this was the promise of hope. This is the shalom I've always been looking for. And then it came and it left her wanting. So we cannot find peace in accomplishments or achievements or money or fame. And a lot of people say, a lot in, in, in our culture, in our society, in our cultural narrative would say, well, okay, we agree with that. You have to find it inside yourself. You have to look inward to find your peace. That's where it will be. I want to push back on that a little bit because I would say that your heart and my heart are actually the largest contributors to our lack of peace. Isn't it true that your heart is always up in arms about something He got the promotion, so you're filled with envy. See, if you actually had true internal peace, you would not be so miffed by it. If peace in the fullest sense was inside of you, then these external winds would not blow your peace away like a leaf. The wind blows, and there goes our peace. Something happens, and all of a sudden, we're up in arms. We're ticked. We're miffed. The songwriter Sandra McCracken released a new album not long ago, and one of her lines is, I am always noisy, always clamoring. Isn't that true of you and me? If you're anything like me, sometimes you walk away from a conversation and you think, ah, I shouldn't have said that. You feel like a total idiot for an extended period of time. That happens to me like twice a day. By the way, I'm not even kidding. Uh, how about the thought, okay, will I, will I be seen or viewed, thought of or exposed as a failure? That would not even be a question on your mind if you actually had true and lasting peace. The Dalai Lama says this, the question of real lasting world peace concerns human beings. So basic human Feelings are also at its roots. Through inner peace, genuine world peace can be achieved. In this, the importance of individual responsibility is quite clear. An atmosphere of peace must first be created within ourselves, then gradually expanded to include our families, our communities, and ultimately the whole planet. It's a nice sentiment. But did you catch it? The 10,000 pound burden that he just placed on your shoulders... You better find peace. Your family's depending on it. Your community's depending on it. The whole world is depending on your ability to find inner peace. Now go. Find it. Work really hard at it. See the irony? You better find peace or else the human race will not be at peace. It's a nice sentiment, but it doesn't get us there. The command to find inner peace is just one more burden. Look inward. Okay, I actually talked to a guy um, not long ago. He was uh, a practicing Buddhist, later became a Christian, but he said that he would sit there and and meditate and attempt to detach and find this inner peace that we are to be after. Uh, And he said after a while he just started asking himself the question, "What am I doing? What am I doing?" What am I really accomplishing? How do I know? Where's the assurance? See, you don't know how elusive true peace is until you really try hard to find it. When you pursue after it, it's then that you realize how unquiet your heart is. Giving this advice to unpeaceful people is heaping a massive burden onto them. Okay, point number two. The peace that Jesus gives us. Entirely different kind of peace. The Bible does tell us that it is possible to have inner peace. But getting that peace has nothing to do with you. Okay? It's possible to have inner peace, but getting that peace has nothing to do with you. Okay? You, you, just like Linz Redding, just like Dion Sanders, working, achieving, pursuing, accomplishing, nailing it, won't do it. And like the Dalai Lama, look inside, find it internally. Christianity has nothing to do with those things. It is not a man-centered, you better find this peace. Did you notice in our passage this morning... Verses 37 to 42 or 41, how tender and gentle and kind Jesus was. Let me read that real quick. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. This is after he announced peace to you, by the way. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I, myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So here's the scene. Not long after Jesus had just been abandoned by and left to be murdered by these disciples, who, by the way, didn't believe him when he said he would die, which he told them multiple times, they just didn't get it. He then raises from the dead, as once again he said he was going to to them, which they still didn't believe. And they are still, in this moment, in disbelief, that it is Jesus Christ in the flesh before them, risen from the dead. Still, he's right in front of them. They still don't believe it's him. And how does he respond? I know how you and I would respond. Again, you've got to be kidding me, guys. I just told you not long ago that I was going to die. You didn't believe me. Then I died and the whole time I was telling you I was going to die, I told you I was going to raise again and I was going to appear to you and I was going to show myself to you and you still didn't believe me and then I did it and I'm in your living room looking at you six feet away and I'm telling you peace to you and you just, it doesn't sink in, does it? You and me would have said still guys, bye, I'm out of here, I can't deal with it. The obstinance is too much. You're too stubborn. I'm over it. Fed up. Done. But what does he do? They're sitting there looking at him. Not him. Can't be. He lowers himself to them. He doesn't beat him over the head like they probably deserve. He acknowledges their doubts, yes. He affirms them. Did you catch it? He said, are you still disbelieving? (laughs) You're still in doubt? He calls a spade a spade. He doesn't shy away from it. But in response to them, he says, Doubters, weak ones, storm-tossed souls, I've got you. You frail, wavering, tiny faced worry-wart. For whom it just won't sink in. Your doubt doesn't scare me. Your resistance to entering my true peace. Is no match for my dedication to you. Your obstinance is no match for my accomplished peace on your behalf. You still don't believe me? Touch me. Come on. Feel. Real holes. Real wounds. Real wounds. Take as long as you need. I'm here. I'm here for you. I'm here to show you myself. You're not going to scare me away. Your lack of peace, your unrest, does not faze me. I'm for you, more than you're even for yourself. You see, peace does not come from you. It comes to you. Peace does not come from you, it comes to you. And it comes in the form of a person, and his name is the prince of peace. I love it in the text. One of the things that, to the disciples' credit, it says is that they, they couldn't believe they were marveling over it. You see what's going on here? It's too good to be true. This is the absolute epitome of too good to be true. No way can it be, no way can it be that he would die for me and rise for me and come to me in all of my foolishness and all of my doubt and all of my disbelief and make himself so readily available and be so committed to me and hold me and love me and carry me in all of my failure and all of my lack of peace. And so here's the heart of true Christian peace marveling over what he's done. That you and me are obstinate, foolish disciples in the living room while he's standing right in front of us and we're saying, I don't think it's him. It couldn't be. And then coming to the conclusion that it is him, that he has accomplished the peace, that he has done all of it from A to Z on our behalf and then walked up to us and said, here, it's yours. It's yours. Blow it. Doesn't matter. Because it depends on me, not you. Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he said, it is finished. In that moment, what he was saying is that the sins of his people had been paid for in full. When he walks up to the disciples here and he says, peace to you, it's like he's saying it is finished all over again. Done. Accomplish peace. Peace. Yours. You don't need to achieve it. You just need to walk into it. This does something in your life. It changes you. It fortifies you to face things that you never thought would be possible. Perhaps you've been sitting in here this morning and saying, well, you know, actually, I'm pretty peaceful. I'm actually doing okay in life. Marriage is good. Job's good. Financially, Stable, puppy's good, whatever it may be. You're healthy, you're happy, you're at peace. To you, I say, give it time. Give it time. The things that are propping up your peace right now cannot hold it up forever. They fall. It's temporal peace, right? Your job, when you lose it, it's comfortable now when you have it. When you lose it, what will happen? What will you place your peace in? See, peace in anything besides the prince of peace is utterly temporal. And temporal peace is no peace at all. It's just delayed unrest, right? Peace, if it is not eternal, is no peace at all. In John fourteen twenty seven, Jesus says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So what he is saying is the peace that I leave with you, the peace that I give to you is a peace that is not circumstantial. It is eternal. It does not sway with the wind. It does not ebb and flow with the tide. You can lose everything and still have peace. Do you know that 10 of the 11 disciples that he is currently speaking to and says peace to you were martyred, some crucified upside down, others beheaded, some nerve for Jesus to say peace to you, right? You see, he's talking about a deeper peace. And in those moments, when death is on your doorstep, it is possible to have peace. Do you remember the first martyr? Stephen preaches the gospel. People don't like it. They pick up rocks and begin pelting them. Helping him with them. They start stoning him. What does he say? He looks up to heaven and he prays for the people. Forgive them, just like Jesus did on the cross. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're murdering me with rocks. That's okay. I've got peace. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they do. Why in the world would God allow us to experience these hard and dark things like Stephen experienced? Now, of course, I doubt most of us will be martyred. Not impossible, but I doubt it. So the question is, why in the world does God allow us to suffer in these ways? You see, in his sovereign love and care for you, He slowly pries your stubborn fingers from the circumstantial peace that we cling to. We grip it. We love it. We say, life is here. And he's like, there's no life there. Let me pull your fingers off one by one so that I can show you a true and lasting and greater peace. Bit by bit, and as he does it, he doesn't stand over you saying, measure up. He says, touch my wounds. Come here. I'm still here. You didn't scare me away yet. Your foolishness did not cause me to drop you. Because here's here's the question of the day for each and every one of us. Is Jesus better than whatever your circumstances provide you? The answer is a thousand times yes. Many of us would affirm that verbally verbally. But it typically takes strategic removal of our comforts for us to see that. And God cares about that. Jesus wants you to have full life, not half-hearted life, not circumstantial life that will soon disappear. It's fleeting. He has eternal rest for you, not temporal rest. I'll leave you with this. In 1555, a bishop by the name of Nicholas Ridley was put on trial for heresy. You should know that he was not heretical. His beliefs were actually something that was in the Bible. He was upholding a truth according to his own conviction. Queen Mary didn't like it. It was shaking things up too much. So they held the trial. They sentenced him found guilty, the sentence, burned alive. You will be burned alive on this day, October 16th, 1555. He was to be burned at the stake for doing something righteous. Wrap your head around that. And the night before his death, his brother-in-law comes to him and he says, I'm going to stay the night with you. I'm going to be moral support, I'm going to give you comfort, I'm going to be with you. Ridley responds, no, no, that you shall not, for I mind God willing to go to bed and to sleep as quietly tonight as I ever did in my life. Going to be burned at the stake and he says, I'll sleep like a baby, no problem. You see, Nicholas Ridley knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. He knew what awaited him. He knew that the Prince of Peace had already accomplished his peace. He knew that as unexpectedly as Jesus showed up in the disciples' living room that night will be as unexpectedly as he returns again. This time, however, Jesus, the one who accomplished our peace, will not only announce it to us, but will bring it to its complete fulfillment. A heavenly, eternal shalom in which whole peace is the whole story that never ends. He's worthy. He is worthy. Will you pray with me? Lord, you are worthy. You are good. You are kind. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for us. And God, we are restless people with restless hearts that flutter around from empty flower to empty flower aiming to be filled. In our hunger, satiate us with you, the bread of life. Show us In our suffering, there is great joy. There is great peace. You do not push us away. You do not stiff arm us in our failure. You draw near. You lower yourself. You love us. Give us rest in you and nothing else. In Christ's name, amen.